Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, I have the distinguished opportunity to have Dr. Vanessa Valdis on the program today for her phenomenal book, published by SUNY Press in 2017, entitled Diasporic Blackness, The Life and Times of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg. How are you doing today, doctor? <laughs> I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. As I see the squiggly lines here, I think we're doing just fine right now. As we have, have been practicing this for some time, but we're going to keep doing this. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to keep doing it. And the reason why, listeners, uh, uh, doctor... The, the, the phenomenal doctor and I are laughing so much. It's because this interview has definitely been in the works for um, from one end of the end of a semester to the beginning of another. And so this has been going on since, you know, the end of uh, the spring semester 2018. And uh, this is being recorded August 1st of 2018. So uh, one thing that you will learn with the New Books and African American Studies staff and the overall New Books Network, we are all about that word perseverance. And, and this interview is definitely a case study for that. But it is for good use because as I have on this hoodie that says, books saved my life, the person that brought that into being in all seriousness is Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, <laughs> the great Afro-Puerto Rican yes. man in the freaking <laughs> flesh. And he is the reason why we are here today for the 12,000th time speaking about this tremendous book. And it's because the book is so tremendous, but the author is even more stupendous why we must continue <laughs> and persevere. Yes. So welcome yes, to the I'm, show. I'm really, really excited to be here as I was, <laughs> you know, all of the times that we have spent together. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Yes, yes. And so um, before we get knee deep into this book, um, please tell us why this book, why Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, and what does what is so herring about his story that you're like, yeah. I got to I got to write a book about this dude. Like I got to. Like what about this guy made you do So that? this book has roots back to when I was in college. So we're talking 20 years back now when in my penultimate semester in school, I took two classes that changed my life. I was an English major to that point and took, you know, English major stuff, right? Sure, Chaucer, Milton, and then Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin. It's what I'm reading, it's what I'm doing and Lo and behold, I see this class in the catalog and it's U.S. Latino literature. And I had never known what that, I didn't know what that was. So I was like, all right, well, let's see. And that changed, that class changed my life because it was the first time I saw books written by people like myself and my family. So i.e. questions of identity, questions of uh, through language, through religion, um, by folks who, for example, were writing in English, but their parents spoke Spanish or their grandparents spoke Spanish and they had come from other countries. Or, you know, in the case of Chicanos, you know, the United States was their country <laughs> and then the U.S. took it over. Um, so I took that class. And then I also the same semester took Afro-Hispanic literature. And that was a class that for the first time I saw explicit mentionings of or treatments of blackness in Latin America. And so I am a daughter of two black Puerto Ricans. Um, my family has been in Puerto Rico, at least on my mother's side for 130 years. This is what I know. And so the combination of those two things came in a pivotal time in my life where prior to that, 
like most um, Latin Americans who live in the U.S. or Caribbean people who live in the U.S., you know, there's an there's uh, identification with your national self, right? So you hear like a Puerto Rican, I'm Cuban, I'm whatever, but there's often no explicit like I'm black, Puerto Rican, or white, or whatever. And so it came at a time for me where I was looking at my family and looking at myself and going, hey, why don't we ever talk about this, really? Um, and then that same semester, right, I have the professor mentions that there is a center in Harlem called the Schomburg Center, and it was named after a Puerto Rican man. And so as a bookworm who was born and raised in New York City, I was shocked that there was anything, there was any monuments, let alone a library, named for a Puerto Rican. And so that was kind of fascinating for me. And that stayed in my consciousness, right? It just kind of like hovered. Um, so that same professor at, that taught the US Latino Lit class, I went to him and I said, I'd love to learn more about this. He invited me to go to graduate school. And I say invited, because that's how he presented it. I didn't realize that I was being recruited necessarily. And I wound up in, uh, at Vanderbilt University and I got a master's in Spanish, master's in Portuguese and a combined doctorate. So I was trained as a, a comparatist. And so with my English undergraduate degree, I was able to see motifs and tropes and resonances across the hemisphere, um, particularly in literatures written by black folks. And so that has become my focus, right? My, my specialty is um, the literatures of the African diaspora, right, across national boundaries. And so as that has come into fruition, um, as we now see a more popular use of Afro-Latinidad, right, that is now more in the public consciousness than it has been. You know, Schomburg was, he's the, the, the person that brings together all of these things. Um, he's the person that a lot of people didn't know much about. Um, there are some Puerto Ricans who knew that he was Puerto Rican, but a lot of people didn't know that. He's often affiliated with the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but once you look into his life, you realize that he's already 50 years old by the time of the Harlem Renaissance. So it's like, what was he doing prior to that? Um, and so, yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to just fill in these gaps of who is this man? Why is he so important? And why, what is it about him that he, his identity gets fragmented in that way, that kind of, you know, there's a pick and choose quality when it comes to him. And at the same time, we don't know much about him, but what we do know is this little, little bit. And so that, all of that was the inspiration for this book. And with that particular inspiration, what, um, what particular areas, um, because when you talk about the Harlem Renaissance, it really didn't occur to me until, until even now, um, how 50 years of life was already lived pretty much right as the Harlem Renaissance is going on. And almost when you think about like the Renaissance nature of the period, you think about like, like youth culture almost, right? You think about, you know, relatively young folks um, who would live, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after the, the, the Renaissance is over. But, you know, someone like Schomburg was like already like, you know, he was, you know, he was older. Um, and so could you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, what led up to that particular period? Tell us, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the early life of, of Schomburg and kind of what was going on in, in Puerto Rico, um, where, where he was, where he was born and a little bit about his family upbringing as well, that kind of give us a better understanding of, of the man. For me, Again, what was critical was first going to the Schomburg Center and you are, you once upon, when right. you walk into that space, you see a picture of him and what you're confronted with is a picture of a black man. And so that was really telling for me because people, again, there's the, we have to, what I was, in, was called to do with this was really take a serious examination of how blackness is treated within the Puerto Rican community, right? So this was 
This book also is a love letter to my community, to the community into which I was born as a New Yorker, um, into the larger Puerto Rican community, but then even the larger Black community, right? And the multiple Black communities that exist here in New York. So Arturo Schomburg is born in 1874. He is born to a Danish West Indian free Black woman um, and a German Puerto Rican man, meaning his father's family was was in Puerto Rico since the 1820s. He's born in 1874. So that's a Puerto Rican family. It's just that at times we don't think of German presence in the Hispanic Caribbean, right? So already there, there's a kind of um, pushback against what are simplistic notions of ethnic identities in the Caribbean. Um, his, his father recognizes him, which is really important because you know there is a sense of um, illegitimacy. I think there's this idea of like, oh, well, he has this white name. We don't really, really, and that's part of, like everything about Arturo Schomburg is hard to place. It defies stereotype, right? So you have a Spanish name, Spanish first two names, and then a German last name. Um, but his grandmother, his his paternal grandmother, is on his baptism certificate, meaning his father's family did in fact recognize him. Um, so he is, you know, a legitimate son. Um, and he is raised primarily with his mother's family. So he is raised in St. Thomas and St. Croix in addition to Puerto Rico. Um, he is born into a free black community in Puerto Rico, which today is called San Dulce. When he was born, it was called San Mateo de Cangrejos, which is one of, it was a maroon settlement historically. And so even that, that's a history that we don't necessarily talk about explicitly in Puerto Rico. So all of that is incredibly important. Um, he lives his first 17 years in the Caribbean. Um, and then he comes to New York. And in that time, he almost immediately gets involved with the fight for independence of Cuba and Puerto Rico. And so when I started doing my research on him, again, Schomburg is aligned primarily with the Harlem Renaissance. And there's this idea with him that, uh, with some folks that, well, he left his Puerto Ricanness, right? That because there was in this in the writings about him, and there's there's not too many writings about him. I mean, Schomburg in general elicits a footnote sometimes, you know, or a mention in a chapter. In my research, there were literally maybe like I can count the there was one biography published in 1989 uh, by by Eleanor Devernay Sinnet, which is the, the was the standing biography. And then there was, you know, a couple, an essay here, a chapter there. That was it, really. Those are the fullest treatments of him. Um, but they kind of like, with one exception, well, two of them. In general, there was no sense of like his Puerto Ricanness. Um, and so it's really important for me that in in the first chapter that I ground his identity in Puerto Rico, um, and in the fact that when he gets here, this is an Afro. New York City has a larger larger than Puerto Rican, but a larger Afro-Cuban exile community and Afro-Puerto Rican exile community. So we're talking tobacco workers and artisans, um, folks who on the islands, in the islands, had been uh, thrown out by the Spanish colonial government, because both islands were colonies of Spain at the time, and they were fighting for independence. And so if you are in New York, anybody who is in New York in the first or second week of June, for example, knows that... Uh, there's always where we can debate. And if you go to that parade, you will almost always hear calls for independence uh, for Puerto Rico, always, for as long as I can remember. What I did not realize up until the, the writing of this book was that the New Yorican community, i.e. the New York Puerto Rican community, was founded by these men and women who were writing their materials, who were forming schools, who were founding newspapers and writing documents and writing pamphlets and raising money and gathering weapons to, to have armed insurrection <laughs> in Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, and he was right in the middle of that. He was the secretary of uh, one of the revolutionary clubs, um, Las Dos Antillas. Uh, he also served in Club, uh, Club Bodinquen, Bodinquen being the indigenous name of Puerto Rico. Um, he worked alongside Jose Martí. Most uh, folks who know anything about Cuba know that Jose Martí is recognized as the father of the Cuban nation. Um, he was also the father of the, the he, was, he headed and founded the Cuban Revolutionary Party. 
And so Schomburg is in that. He is in everything that is happening with regards to uh, Spanish, uh, Puerto Rican and Cuban independence from Spain at that time and was fighting for it until 1898, which is when the USS Maine, um, it's three years into the, the third Cuban war for independence and the USS Maine blows up and, and the United States uses that as an excuse and enters into what had then been the Cuban War for Liberation and takes over those islands. And with that, all the revolutionary activity in this city dispersed. Once the US came in, it was a wrap. As the United States uh, typically does <laughs> for unfortunate reasons, right? Um, and, and with that particular uh, grounding contextually, um, I think that really gives us a, a great understanding of, you know, the, the, the connects really that, um, that, that Schomburg had um, in the sense of he's well before, you know, the, in the Harlem Renaissance period that we spoke about before, he's well connected to radicals. He's well connected to uh, intellectuals, to, to multiple communities. Um, and so I think that, that that really gives us a great grounding. And um, as well as we go into, as we cycle through the, the early 20th century and we're crossing the 19th to the 20th century, um, I thought that one of the more interesting parts of your book was when you talk about, you know, his, you know, how he, how did he, you know, start collecting, right? Because the term bibliophile, honestly, probably three or four years ago, didn't really, me really mean anything to me. Uh, but now the concept of being a bibliophile uh, is, 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 if I'm, if I'm correct in how it's, how I'm using it, um, is a way that definitely describes uh, 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 Arturo Schomburg and, and, and really his, 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 what he's personified to be today in 2018. So would you be able to give us a, br a brief breakdown of kind of like how did he begin his journey and, and any um, challenges he had um, to his particular uh, nature and his identity as well? Yeah, so the collecting actually is really fascinating because prior to prior to the Carnegie Corporation buying his collection, his private collection, with the intent of donating it to the New York Public Library, Arturo Schomburg was mostly known as being a Freemason, right? He was a really prominent Mason within the black communities in the city. And so he collected even in that role, right? He, within his lodge, he was collecting, he helped to found the library in his lodge and was in charge of ordering the papers and making sure everything was okay. Now his lodge, the lodge into which he was initiated um, happens when he's, his initiation happens when he's 20 years old. So again, he's still in an Afro-Cuban, Afro-Puerto Rican milieu, right? The lodge was an Afro-Cuban one out in Brooklyn. What happens uh, after the war again is that Oftentimes when we talk about passing in this country, we talk about um, African-Americans passing into white communities, right? We don't necessarily talk about um, Afri folks of African descent from other places passing into an African-American community. And that's what happens with a lot of the Afro-Cubans uh, with that, that he had been surrounded by was that folks, and he himself, for some people, he passed into black communities, i.e. English speaking communities. And that, again, was something that I challenge in this book because he never forgets his Puerto Ricanness. He names his children um, Spanish names, like his kids have names like Carlos and Dolores and Maximo, you know, so obviously he's not forgetting his background. Um, but also in his lodge, he translates as the, the Afro-Cuban population disperses, there is, uh, he's active in the recruitment of folks from the Anglophone, the Anglophone Caribbean. So folks coming from the British West Indies. And he translates the documents of the lodge from Spanish to English. So you have that on top of the fact that he had really been involved again with the Afro-Cuban and Afro-Puerto Ricans who were establishing schools and for themselves, because for them, the idea being that in order to be a once you lead a revolution, or once you're a part of the revolution, part of that, the goal of which is to create a new, a new nation, right? A nation state. And you have to be prepared to be an active citizen of that nation state. And so many of these folks, right, they didn't have formal education, right? With Schomburg, what we know is that he 
went to high school. So we're not talking about college graduate, right? And many of these folks were, so they were self-taught and then mm -hmm. they turn around and they teach each other. So he was involved in those communities as well. So you have collecting within his revolutionary sphere, collecting within his Masonic sphere. And then also one of the, a lot of the Masons that mentored him were very much about um, Pan-Africanism, Black internationalism, right? So his, one of his father's figures is uh, John Edward Bruce. And so he was an, a man who had been a former slave, was freed and started newspapers. And he was all about writing history, right? So there's a whole group of folks. Again, when we think about Schomburg, oftentimes he's placed in this kind of exceptional realm, right? Like he was only the only one who did any of this. He wasn't. Right? There were groups of free black folks in this country prior to emancipation, and then certainly after emancipation, who attained edu formal education or not, and they were teaching each other and collecting books. And the idea was, we have to show that we are part of this country. So you collect everything, all documents that, that testify to black excellence and testify to our black humanity. Because in the, in the face of the white supremacy that is ruling the United States, right? this is what we have to do. We constantly have to show that we're human, right? So he's, that's what he's doing at the time. He's involved in all those fears of librarians and archivists and bibliophiles, and certainly on the Northeast corridor, right? What we, those of us who are Amtrak uh, fluent, right? So he's, you know, DC and Philly and Boston and New York, right? But, you know, you're well aware of like what the, the Massachusetts Historical Society and like what's happening, you know, and Philadelphia, right? And Philadelphia, the prominence of the free black community in Philadelphia, right? That's, that's what he's doing is he's in all of these realms with folks who are all concerned about preserving our history and testifying to not only our humanity, not only our intellect, but, you know, excellence on all levels. And, and that is exactly, you know, the, the description that for me personifies really his importance uh, for me um, in the sense that for me, like I remember like the first time I went to, you know, the Schomburg and, and, and I didn't realize at the time how sacred the ground was. I didn't know that, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's, there's a video that's always shown whenever they have like a public program that says, uh, I forget which figure, was it Langston Hughes or, or some, somebody was, uh, was there, there, they were interred or some, so their ashes were, were laid there. Um, uh, which, which figure was that? Yeah. Was Langston that? Hughes. Langston Hughes is buried. Yeah, I was gonna say. yeah. In that, in that lobby. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so to, to, to learn that, and I didn't get to explore it at the time, but I knew that it was important for, for, for reasons that I hope to learn. And, and, and as someone who is the child of a mother whose who siblings grew up in New York, were born and raised in, in the city, it's so intriguing to me to learn, like she didn't really learn about him until she got much, much older. And obviously she didn't grow up, she grew up in Brooklyn, but she didn't grow up in like Harlem, but still like that's an, that's an iconic institution in the entire city of New York, um, uh, specifically for, for those of the, uh, of the African diaspora. Um, so it's so great to learn as I continue to get older um, that there are folks like yourself who are still, you know, finding so, in, uh, so, uh, really awesome ways to really talk about his life. Um, and not only his life, you talk about it, you know, as almost like a love letter to your community, you know, and that, and that love is being spread around so many different communities too, because the story of Schomburg, uh, of, of, of Arturo Schomburg is some, something that I think you, you, you can't not find something about the history of, of the African diaspora and not find something I think useful in the present day space of the Schomburg Center. Right. Absolutely. No. And I think for me personally, you know, what's interesting, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, in my introduction, I talk about the performance of ethnic identities, right? How seemingly it seems like he failed at performing his Puerto Ricanness, quote unquote, to the satisfaction of later day critics who then talk about, well, 
he wrote, and even during his time, right, in his lifetime, he was criticized. Um, I, I reference a letter there where he's communicating with an Afro-Cuban editor in Havana, and he writes to him in English. And in Spanish, the editor, Ujudutia, Gustavo Ujudutia, writes, well, you know, oh, well, we've lost him. You know, this, our proud Afro-Bodinqueño brother. And this idea of, again, it's the same things that if you are, if you speak to Black Latinos today, Afro-Latinos and Latinas and Latinxes today, right? That idea of, well, the Black community doesn't think I'm, uh, um, I'm Black enough and the Hispanic community doesn't think I'm Hispanic enough. That's what he was living, right? So even when I, when I use the word community, please understand that I, I use that most expansive sense of the word, much like he does, right? So the idea of like, it's not just Puerto Ricans, right? It's not just that island. It's, no, he was actively trying to expand definition, at least this is my argument, that he's trying to expand definitions of Blackness and challenging one understandings that are just English-based. Because even at this, you know, even in his lifetime, you know, again, African or Negroness, right, to use the parlance of the time, was understood to be United States, right? And we're in the United States, that makes sense. If you were from other places, you, you know, you was a foreign Negro, and so that was understood to be, you know, and I referenced the, the multiple black communities happening in his lifetime, right? There was a British West Indian community here, right? So he's friends with Claude McKay and Eric Walrens, right? He's friends with Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey is a Mason. So, you know, he's in the midst of all this. Um, but also he's introducing, for many people, he's serving as an introduction to, oh, wow, they're black Latin Americans? Because that's not something that they knew, right? Because oftentimes... A lot of folks, when you have enclaves, you stick with what you know. And so if there were communities that only spoke Spanish and didn't necessarily speak English, right, that's where they stayed. And he spoke English. And so he spoke both. And, I, you know, there's some of us that I've read other places where he also, he communicated in French. And I read his papers to a friend of his, Dante Belgard, who was the Haitian diplomat to the United States. Um, you know, he's writing in French. So he's writing multiple, multiple languages, multiple registers dealing with multiple communities at the time. Um, friends with, you know, he's, he's friends with Du Bois. He's friends with Elaine Locke. He's friends with, you know, Claude, um, Claude uh, Charles Johnson, right? Du Bois being, of course, editor of The Crisis. Charles Johnson at one time being the editor of Opportunity Magazine or Opportunity. He's being published, you know, they're publishing his work and he's talking about Cuba. And he's talking, you know, he's saying, he's talking, he's calling attention to black populations in Spanish speaking lands. And so that was when I started this book my emphasis as a person who is trained in literature, I started with his writings mm -hmm. and I said, okay, where's he being published? And that was at the time, you know, that's what he's writing about. He's calling attention to blackness. Um, and, and again, black internationalism, not a focus on English speaking areas, you know, that were not free yet. A lot of focus on Haiti, right? The U S had, had taken over Haiti in 1915 took over the Dominican Republic in 1916. And so, and was there for, was on that island um, for 20 years or not, almost 20 years, right? In Haiti, they were there till 1934. Um, and in, in Dominican Republic, they were there for eight years. So those, those are causes that we may at this moment have, we may not be studying as much as we should be, but that's, that's, that's the environment. That's what's happening in his time is he is, he, his, he himself is translating everywhere he goes. You know, Elaine Locke, after his death, says comments on the fact that Schomburg, you know, introduced him to, right, Black communities from Latin America. So that was, a, you know, for everything that we, for all the credit that we give to Bois and Locke, you know, as PhDs at the time, you know, think about this man who has a, has a high school education, who's teaching them about the millions of people that live, of African descent, that live below the Rio Grande. Also, a part of your book that I found very intriguing, considering, um, you know, where I came from as an HBCU, Florida A&M University, shouts out to them, um, you know, HBCU land, oh yeah, um, and also how you tell a story about Fisk University during the Jim Crow South that I thought would be a very valuable uh, 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 part to, to add to to the listening audience, uh, would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, uh, Arturo Schomburg's uh, experience dealing with Fisk University and and them, you know, really finding him 
Yeah. So as I just mentioned, Charles Johnson was one of his, was, was a very close friend of his. Um, again, in the capacity of publishing him in opportunity. And then Charles Johnson, you know, as, as a lot of folks know, prominent sociologist uh, and gets recruited to head up the social science division at Fisk University. And so one of the things that he does is he brings Schomburg to the attention of Fisk's president, new president at the time. Um, and so Shortly thereafter, in the late 1920s, Sean, and this is after his, the sale of his collection, uh, they, he's asked to the president of Fisk at the time, whose name escapes me at the moment, Th Thomas Elsa something. I apologize to him. Um, but he asks, he asks uh, Schomburg to, he, he asks him to <laughs> act on behalf of Fisk University because Fisk University is going to establish itself as a premier it wants it to establish itself more firmly as the premier um, university, black university at the time. And so they had gotten money to create a new library building. They were really like, there was an infusion of money from organizations, you know, in, in the North to, to the investment. There was a concerted investment in black education in the U.S. South. And Schomburg was a part of that. So... Uh, negotiations began in 1928, I believe, where he's being asked to go see collections and he would buy them on behalf of Fisk. Um, 1928, 1929, he then uh, is persuaded to actually go live in Nashville, Tennessee, and to really oversee the, the establishment of the collection once the building is completed. And so he lives in Nashville for a few, for two years. Um, which again, as a Vanderbilt graduate who is literally across the train tracks from Fisk University, I mean, I was unwittingly like it. Once I started writing this book, I, I saw the parallels, and I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, and that was one of them because I knew exactly mm -hmm. I knew what Fisk was, and I knew what it meant not only to the surrounding community, of course, but you know, Fisk is Fisk is tremendous in the HBCU universe. So you know, I know FAMU, and I know y'all, mm -hmm. but you know, I have to kind of rep Fisk in this moment, <laughs> and so um, yeah, so. Prior to his arrival there, their library had, it was in the low hundreds. And then when he has finished uh, accumulating the books, they have almost 2,000 volumes. Right and again, it his collection, the collection that he assembles at Fisk University takes on the reputation of dealing with, 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 with Black folks outside of the United States. And so even there, right, there were people who were assessing that collection, saw what was coming in, and saw it was multilingual, it was multinational, and it was dealing with the diaspora. It was dealing with, you know, everyone of African descent. Um, at one point, there was they were in talks to create a. Uh, they wanted Fisk to have a library school, and so that was why they were going. Okay, well, what materials we have here? And also, he was one that he presided over their reading room. And so the idea of having a room, we oftentimes don't think that we think about the spatial dimensions of physical dimensions of what a library looks like, right? And where a reading room is in relation to the stacks, for example. And so he was also instrumental in Aaron Douglas painted murals at Fisk in, his, in the reading room at Fisk University. And so you can still access that building. It's now the administration building because they wound up buying a new or constructing a new building in the 60s. Um, but you can still see those murals. You still see the, the cards the, the, that we no longer use anymore. And that's where, that's where Arturo Schomburg was, you know? And he was intent on making sure, again, being a part of training students who, you know, at the time when we're talking about the Du Bois-Washington debate on the nature of education for young Black men and women, right? And an emphasis on physical labor versus intellectual pursuits. You know, he wanted, he was overseeing uh, curricula and uh, an accessibility of texts that made sure that these young people knew about African Americans as well as peoples of African descent throughout the hemisphere. Also, that you know, I I, I loved um, that connection that you made between you know your 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 time at Vanderbilt, um, and, and it's funny. Um, yesterday, I was actually in Asheville, North Carolina, at a coffee shop. And um, I remembered seeing um, on uh, Vanderbilt's website that y'all have like a like a coffee studies department or something. I think in, in within the Latin American studies department. And I was like, 
coffee studies? You know what? I, I'm a literature man. I, I don't know. Yeah, Vanderbilt, <laughs> you know, Vanderbilt, something else, man. You know, y'all, y'all, yes. I know Peabody, the education school is good and y'all, y'all been out here doing the work, but good grief. Y'all out here doing coffee too, y'all. You know, these, these Nashville, Tennessee, man, you know, y'all out here doing yes. this stuff. You got Fisk and Tennessee State and Vanderbilt, Belmont, and, you know, that's just within the overall city. So it's a lot of great history that, that's gone down Thank you, uh, within within that time frame that's produced some phenomenal <laughs> scholars, yourself included, of course. And so, um, <laughs> for sure, for sure, got to show some love. Got to show some love. Fight black women, not just on Sundays. And so, um, <laughs> for real, for real, for yes. real. Take off my sorry to bother you voice. And so, <laughs> told you I was going to do it. Told you I was going to do it. Go go see that movie. Go see that movie. I, I ain't working for uh, Boost Riley, but go see that movie. Um, shout out to Tessa and uh, Lakeith Stanfield. And so, um, getting back to Mr. Schomburg. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had like, a moment of realness, and then it's like, okay, now we're back. Yes. <laughs> yes, PhD students <laughs> and Dr. Valdez. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, for sure. And, uh, and so so with that, you know, I also thought that, you know, another part of the the life of of, of Alfonso, or, uh, ah, I can't even say <laughs> this brother name right, God forgive me, about Schomburg, um, is that I, I thought that a part that was really cool was how, okay. we talked about the Harlem Renaissance before, but how you told stories of how, People would just be coming to this dude's house. He'd be having like parties, like he'd be having like people over. Hey, man, check. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, in, in the, I'm not in the voice of, uh, of Schomburg, but how I would think of that this was going down, be like, <laughs> yo, you see this over here, man? I got, you know, all so so trying to think about like painting the story of painting the picture of how, you know, there were so many people, um, you know, so many intellectuals, so many creatives, so many writers, so many artists who were um, coming to his home to look at all of the artifacts and all the, you know, important pieces of black, of black, you know, the, the black experience diasporically. Um, so could you tell us a bit about that as well and particularly highlight some of the individuals um, who, who would frequent his home and, and who really just knew him? You know, talking about Du Bois and and Johnson and others, but others who were just like secret in his house. I thought that was so, so really cool. To learn. Yeah. So, so you had said earlier, you'd re- made reference mm-hmm. earlier about um, when we think about the Harlem Renaissance, we think about young people, right? Like it's like, it's, and that's anytime we use Renaissance as a word, right? It's the idea of like this energy, right? That's associated with youth, right? But when we're talking about this folks, actually like, Du Bois is older than Schomburg, right? Like Du Bois has like, uh, I believe six to eight years on him, right? So we're talking, he is contemporaneous to, to Du Bois and to Locke, and he's also a patron to young artists. So Langston Hughes, there's a letter of, of, of Langston Hughes coming with Zorneo Hurston, and they're going out to see his work, uh, to see his collection. Um, James Weldon Johnson at the time did an anthology of poetry, edited an anthology of poetry at the time, again, of authors from throughout the hemisphere. And so he, he was also close with Schomburg. Schomburg put a lot of people on to, again, writers from throughout the diaspora and also African-American writers. I believe that he was one of the ones, they said that he was one of the ones that had three copies of Phyllis Wheatley's first book, for example. And so he's instrumental in and, and again, not only himself, but also other archivists and collectors at the time are instrumental in what we would later come to know as Black Studies programs, right? This idea of like, that's what we're building this knowledge on is folks who conserved these documents from, you know, the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, but yeah, Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes was friends with him. And also he was in, Schomburg was instrumental in, and again, friend, I use friends loosely because there was an age. So he was a mentor (laughs) to Langston Hughes and to Zora Neale Hurston. Um, And also younger uh, writers. So uh, Afro-Cuban writer, Nicolás Guillén um, is, uh, he, Langston Hughes was translating Guillén's work. And also, you know, Schomburg knows him. Um, there are also artists. He he patronizes art at the time. So he's 
doing in the 135th Street branch, which becomes the Schomburg Center um, later, at, well after his death, um, he is putting on exhibitions. And so he's exhibiting books and documents, but he's also exhibiting art. Um, he's working with the Harmon Foundation, um, who had awarded him a medal for excellence in education upon the sale of his collection. And then he's also uh, uh, bringing other artists, visual artists, to the attention of the Harmon Foundation. So again, he does a lot. What, what I found interesting about Schomburg was there's a question of implicit versus explicit, right? Um, when we talk about the production of knowledge at times, particularly within the academy, uh, there's this idea of you have to write that book, you have to write that article, you have to write that book review, right? And he is writing, yes, he's writing articles that are appearing in newspapers and in you know the most well-read um, uh, publications at the time for the African-American community. And also he's doing, you know, implicit knowledge production, right? He's putting together exhibitions. And, he's curating. And on, honestly, you that's know? why so there's a lot to be I was even thinking about like what's going to be my curates, like post right? that's interview vision. like tweet. And I don't think I usually have one. Not everyone knows it. Necessarily what, you know, what Cats the organizing principle and so one of the choices are. One of the things I was just even thinking was, also you know, begs who, us to look at. who are the people that right now are the main, you know, black diasporic or African African diasporic uh, 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 collectors, right? Who are the people who, you know, are are you know going to all of these different places and acquiring, you know, because because I think about a lot of my friends. Because I came from a master's program where, you know, it was a lot of people who were doing dual masters in history. And also doing a master's in like library and information studies. So a lot of archivists and future archivists and such. And so uh, being around them really for about two or three years has really, I think, fundamentally changed how I think about these kinds of questions in ways that I don't necessarily don't necessarily think that if I would have went straight into a PhD or if I would have gone to a different kind of school, I I don't know if I'd have the same questions. And I bring that up because. When we look at, you know, who acquires particular collections, right? You talk about the Schomburg. They just got, um, you know, they just acquired these new, uh, uh, un, uh, well, pr- I guess kind of previously unknown, kind of known um, uh, chapters of of the of uh, Malcolm X's uh, autobiography, right? Which were apparently taken out or in some way, obviously not included in the final text um, after his death. And so when I think about those kinds of decisions, and we're speaking even just to the Schomburg Center now, or how they just got, um, um, they, they got Baldwin's papers, or I think uh, some of Baldwin's papers, uh, at least in the post uh, I Am National Negro World, um, shouts out to Raoul Peck. Um, and so looking at those kinds of questions, that's why I think someone like Schomburg is even, even more important because we're always looking at now who's going to acquire the papers. Right. Do we want them to go? And, and these questions, right, that people have. Do we want, you know, African-Americans who went to HBCUs, for instance, for their papers to go to Yale or go to these other institutions? Right. And we're shout out to those who are at Yale. We're not coming at your neck. We're just pointing out in, 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 in a, a particular uh, 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 situation, um, some questions um, who are going to stay unsighted. And so. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, to your point, look at, I mean, I was talking about the classes that I went to um, earlier. I was, I'm a Yale graduate. So, and there's a point in this, in this text when I talk about um, Jean Hudson, who was the first director of the Schomburg Center, where she compared the Beinecke Library, right, which is where Langston Hughes' papers are. It's a James Weldon Johnson collection, right? So you have all these prominent African-American writers who are at Yale. I mean, that was, you know, you know what you were doing when you drop, name drop Yale and compared it. <laughs> Honestly, right, right hand of God, right? I did. This is how you know New Books and African-American Studies listeners and, and those across to the other cross-listed uh, uh, networks or pages. We were talking before this started offline about how, you know, we're friends now. If if our past couple of months haven't haven't shown that, this moment <laughs> adds on the 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 um the 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 cherry on the top with the whipped cream and everything, because I had no clue. 
I I ain't scope your bio like you usually do, and so I ain't know you was at Yale. So when you said, "Oh yeah, uh, uh, yeah," I went to you. I was like, "Oh Lord, I'm gonna get this mail from no, no. I'm gonna get this no. mail from Yale." David Blight gonna come at my neck. He ain't gonna nope. come on the program with the new uh, Fred Douglas bio. Lord, but let me just let me let me no, you're okay. Jean Blackwell Hudson, <laughs> what she compared it to, she compared Beinecke Library with the Schomburg Center. And what she said was, if you go to the Beinecke Library, and this is to your point about larger questions of an archive, right? She said that the Beinecke Library is like a mausoleum in comparison to the Schomburg Center, right? And, the, and you know, we just, a few weeks ago, your colleague, Ashley Farmer at Black Perspectives, uh, she she has written uh, an article about what it is to be Black in the archive, right? And so that idea of, again, and the archive, in, in the root of that word, this is the records that were at the magistrate's house, right? It goes back to Roman times. And so the idea of the construction of an archive is a state legitimizing the collection of information and records and then making it difficult for a larger population to access those records. And one of the revolutionary things about Schomburg and about the Schomburg Center is that his thought process behind his collection was always the democratization of knowledge. It was always about, we all need to have this knowledge. And so to the extent that when they, they had, they, so the, shop, the Carnegie Corporation buys his private collection in 1926, um, which was the one that was at his house out in Brooklyn that people would go to, right? They buy that collection. Um, he dies in 1938. Um, it is formally renamed the Schomburg Collection. So that it was the Negro Division of Literature, Prints, and History. Um, but it was unofficially known as the Schomburg Collection, but it was, becomes officially the Schomburg Collection. Um, and then in, in 1972, I believe, the Schomburg Center is deemed a part of the research library as part of the New York Public Library. And so they had to reconstruct um, the 135th Street branch, you know, and so what stands today, that what covers that block of 135th Street to 136th Street, that you know, they just finished reconstruction again um, and renovation again, but they had to put in place uh, storage that would actually house these, like, keep these documents, you know, safe. Because when we talk about archives, we're talking about temperature control. We're talking about making sure that the documents and the prints and everything that they hold don't aren't destroyed by nature, i.e. weather and humidity, weather, even like internally, right? So humidity levels, things like that. Yale University has the money for that. <laughs> That's my point. And the Schomburg Center, um, in that interview, I believe it was taken in the 1980s, um, Jean Blackwell Hudson says, you know, that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis, while Mr. Schomburg was alive, was just to collect it and to have it, and then to make sure that people could access it. And it was something that they then later on had to develop, you know, as the Schomburg Center got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, when we're talking about accessing knowledge, Right. I mean, the Schomburg Center is legitimately, as most black museums right in this country, they are often underfunded. Right. And yet they are so critical to what we need in terms of the production of knowledge. And one of I think it was it would have been my last uh, episode that that debuted actually that debuted on my birthday was uh, with Ian Roxborough Smith. Um, out in British Columbia, who wrote about the exact issue that you talked about, um, about Black public history activism in Chicago in the World War II era and through the Cold War. So literally, like Schomburg's death in, you said, 1938, is brushing right up against this particular period where, you know, the DuSable Museum is is, uh, being thought of in, in this infancy at this point. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, that's an important museum over there in Chicago, along with the, the Charles Wright up in Detroit. And so, and, and so it's, it's a phenomenal connection that, that, that you just made there. Um, maybe not on purpose, but you did it anyway. Um, and so um, I think that's an important part too, in the sense of, you know, spaces be, you know, what, why are spaces particularly created, right? Is it to be inviting? Is it to become a mausoleum? Can you be an inviting mausoleum? Those are important questions um, that I think that um, I really, I think that are, are really invaluable uh, um, uh, 
they're, they're very valuable questions that scholars I think are having openly um, with folks in the um, archival space, in the, you know, the people who are, you know, we talk about ambiance, right? They are literally the people who create it. And us as scholars are there to, you know, um, to, to gain what we need and, and try to have an experience. Um, and so also when I think about this, I think of as well of even almost the expansion of, you know, new books in African-American studies, right? Or even having an article-based uh, approach too as well and not only books but even you know that archiving while black article it's not a book but that is one of the most valuable um uh that's one of the most i i can i will say this right i had dr farmer on for her for an interview for a book and i will say that you couple those two um her her book remaking uh, uh black power um along with this archiving while black article those are you know that article is so I, I would say it's one of the most important pieces of writing in the entirety of this year. Um, and I think it's going to stand at the test of time because when you connect it to John O. Franklin, when you connect it to um, Arturo um, Schomburg and you think about these folks are writing books, they're accumulating this, this, um, all of these uh, uh, manuscripts, all of these different, you know, pieces of, of history, right? Within a time frame of Jim Crow, where black folks are still being lynched, right? Schomburg is going down in the ninth, what the nineteen twenties? Am I right? Nineteen twenty nine to thirty two. Yeah. So, so the late twenties going. To, there are still black folks being lynched, right? And right? publicly, one of my second, you know, one of my other interviews was about you know black folks in Florida, in North Central Florida, being lynched during the World War Two era, right? Yeah. In the nineteen forties. No, I mean, yeah, and I think. Yeah, to your point, again, and I think that that's what it's very interesting to me, because I think one of the um, things that we've lost, again, is when we think about the prominent archival spaces, right? So Howard, right, has the Moreland Spring Art Center, right? Those were collected, like there's the, the reason that these spaces are named for these folks is that they had the money and they're also like being very intentional in, in collecting, right? And it's the question of, is it accessible like for who are you doing this so anybody who goes to the schomburg center for example when you go to any archive more often than not you have to leave all of your belongings you can take a pencil maybe a laptop that's it it's very limited what you can do when you go to the, the schomburg center, yes if you want if you want to access you know any of the divisions you, you you're asked to check your coat check your stuff they'll give you a plastic bag depending on where you want to go, there are lockers there. But if you go for any of the events at the Schomburg Center, and they have events almost six days out of the week, right? Free events for the community. And the community, not meaning specifically just Harlem, but for throughout the New York City area, it is open to everybody. They're free events and their concerts and their film screenings and you know their book discussions, anything that there are conferences that happen in that space, you can just walk in. You don't have to check anything. Right. And so for folks who don't think of it necessarily as an archive, don't know of it as an archive, but they do know of it as, oh, yeah, I saw Harry Belafonte come, you know, or I saw Sonia Sanchez talk or I saw they just walk in. And so that, you know, outreach to a community and being open to the community, there's a, you know, it was deliberate that he, he was working in 135th Street branch. Right. That was I wanted to say that. And also, as you were talking, I was thinking about how social media and Twitter in particular has, has democratized, again, in terms of access of knowledge, right? Has been really critical in that throughout the world, right? Not just here in the United States. And so, you know, has the hashtags of, you know, Black Twitter historians, right? The hashtags of museums are not neutral, right? There are people who are questioning, you know, and, and that's not to say this isn't new, and I'm not gonna pretend that it is, right? In the same way that like collecting in this country has started within the black uh, communities started, you know, probably in the 18th century, if not earlier, right? These questions, you know, you know, there was a prominent moment. I'm so sorry for the background noise. I am in New York City. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we look at, you know, folks who are named curators in museums, right? Folks who are, who are heading up universities, who are heading up um, any of these institutions that guide our lives and we don't really think about it, that's when, you know, that that's when we see like what's, you know, the wizard behind the curtain, it's, right? Like what's hey, it's real, just real. You know? And so these are ongoing questions that are, that, that are going, that are taking place 
And I think that one of what I hope for, what one of the things that this book did for me was, again, I am trained as a literature scholar, a literary critic. And so because of that, quite frankly, you know, in during the composition of this book, you know, they're disciplinary boundaries, right? So I'm not a historian. I'm not trained as a historian. I always teach literature within the context of history. And so, but I was faced with, okay, I can write a book solely on his writings and that's it. Or I can actually write the book that was begging to be written. And that was, we got to fill in these blanks. And so, you know, everything can be an archive. What you're doing, this is an archive. An individual's writings are their archive. The collection of books, I imagine the, the, the collection of books that you currently have being the host of this program, that's an archive, right? Like all of them. <laughs> so it's what, you know, all of this is what we're, you know, we're all doing it without even thinking about it. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to hit the front pages, right? It doesn't have to be a conversation about how much money the folks spend, you know, to buy, you know, 30 pages of something that were previously unknown, right? We all have them. We're all cure. You know, I think that at this moment in an Instagram reality, I think a lot of people more and Facebook reality, they talk about the curation of lives, right? The images that we choose to put up, the parts of ourselves Same that we choose to share. Right, we're all doing it at any given moment. If you are engaged in social media in that way, and so you know, these are ongoing conversations that cross disciplines. My hope, one of the my one of the things that I learned from the writing of this book, right, was, you know, what the, the issues being talked about in museum studies and library studies is not that different from African American studies or Latino studies or you know Asian American studies. You know, questions of representation and questions of power and how we're assembling that knowledge and for whom we are, who are we serving in the accumulation of that knowledge. And, and that's exactly why for us um, as scholars generally, um, we have to continuously, you know, ask these particular questions. We gotta, you know, we gotta keep, you know, thinking about the archive and, and, and who the archive displaces and, mm-hmm. and how we, you know, go about, um, you know, trying to get through that, right? As someone who writes on uh, Black uh, women's intellectual history uh, broadly within the 19th century and the uh, late uh, 18th, well, that's a direct issue within the field, um, and it has been for a while, um, and, you know, recovering the the voices of of Black women. And so for me, Mm -hmm. when I think about that, I also think about, like, the work of, like, Marissa Fuentes, down at Rutgers and uh, and others where, you know, they're thinking about the archive and and and, and thinking about also terms like agency and, and what does that mean within the context of bondage or within the context of segregation, Jim Crow, you know, lynch violence, right? You know, what does, you know, what are the limitations of agency? And also what does that mean within the overall context of subjugation and, and power struggles? Um, and so for me, Though all of those questions are central to why uh, Schomburg is, is such an important figure to to, to all of us, um, and and why we are very glad to have had you um, on the program today. Um, and so, within the last couple of minutes, we have you. Um, well, I won't ask you the the normal final question, considering uh, I already know what you what you're gonna say. So, so you know, so, so, you. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, don't worry. I, okay. I I ain't no elephant, but I, <laughs> I remember. remember. I got I got a pretty good memory. I, I I I you know I, I try I try. Um, but um, can you tell us a bit about um going forward with this book? Um, after having it published, you know what are what's the what's the part about about Schomburg's legacy that you believe is the most important for those who may not know as much about him? But will after reading this book, but um, they'll probably have listened to this right beforehand. So, what is what's what would you say is the single most valuable um, in lieu of the of the usual question about next work? What do you think is <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the most important uh, uh, piece of information that you want you know the, uh, nascent observers of, of Schomburg and his legacy to to learn about him? So I'm gonna I'm 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 going to take advantage of the next few minutes um, and say two things. Kind of one of, so I don't think you can do singular with him, 
First of all, I think the I think the I think the multiplicity is key to understanding him. And the reason, you know, this is my second uh, book that I've written. It's my fourth book that I have ushered into the world because I had two edited collections prior to this. And all of my what when I construct my books, I do so with the idea of multiple audiences coming in. And so, for example, for those folks who don't know about Puerto Rican history or Cuban history, right, or or Cuban Puerto Rican history in New York City in the late nineteenth century. There's a chapter for you. <laughs> if you want to know a little bit about, like, you know, um, the Harlem Renaissance, there's a chapter for you. If you want to know about Masons, if you want to know about, like, the role of Masons in the construction of Black masculinity, right, there's something there for you. If you want to know about Afro-Latinidad and how that's, you know, coming to play and the idea that being Black and being Latino is not a contradiction, I want to repeat that because folks have issues with that still. But being Black and being Latino is not a contradiction. You can be both at the same time as folks have been for millennia. This is not a new identity. It's just we're talking about it more. Um, there's something there for you. If we want to talk about the archive, right? And not only, um, you know, yes, you cited Marisa Fuentes, right? I talk about Michelle Wolf Truyot here and how, you know, his fundamental work of like silencing the past and the, you know, the, the construction, what the silences and the erasures that come with right, the construction of an archive. But I also put him in conversation with Ada Ferrer, who, you know, has just, you know, has written a book about Cuba and Haiti in the, in the age of revolution, right? And how that work has spawned um, a consideration of the relationship of the, the role of Haiti in, uh, in, in the Haitian revolution um, for Black populations, again, throughout the hemisphere, right? So if you haven't seen Digital Aponte, um, Aponte was a free black man who in 1812 was accused of leading uh, an insurrection in Cuba and was put to death. And, and during his trial, they found a book of paintings that he had, that he had done. And there was references to Toussaint Louverture and you know, references to the Haitian Revolution. And so Digital Aponte is an online website, an online resource. And there's also Visual Aponte, which is an art exhibit that was first shown in Little Miami, I'm sorry, in Little Haiti in Miami, came up to New York, is now going down to North Carolina, is going to Duke, a gallery at Duke University. And so, you know, conversations about, um, again, diasporic Black peoples, right? All of that with regards to, so in relation, Schomburg is, has his hands in many pots. And I think for me, it's also the idea of just being open, right? Again, when we're tr being trained, um, within the academy, there's this, the idea of we have to exist in binaries. And for so many of us, we don't, right? So we just don't. We don't exist in those spaces. So there's not a question of either staying in the academy or going out, right? We look at questions of accessibility, looking at our communities, serving our communities, right? We come with a different motivation into this space. And so this book, he demonstrates through his life how one can navigate those different spaces. And a final legacy for me personally is this book has more firmly allowed me to argue for the importance of um, a more uh, a, a rounded um, Afro-Latinx um, scholarship. And so what this, allowed, what this book allowed me, what the success of this book has allowed me to do is allowed me to go to my, to SUNY Press, which has published three of my four books and, and say, and argue for the creation of a book series that is focusing on Afro-Latinidad. And so, so as I bring a series editor of that, so Afro-Latinx Futures is inviting manuscripts across the humanities and across the social sciences, using Afro-Latinidad, um, using centering Blackness um, throughout the, the hemisphere uh, as an operating um, thought uh, and, and looking for manuscripts not, that are not only doing recovery work, yes, because God knows we have to do recovery work, but also theorizing then what does that mean for us now and what will it mean for us tomorrow? And so that's an important legacy for me personally, but also for you know, the scholarship that is happening at this moment, because oftentimes if you do Blackness in Latin America, still um, across disciplines, there's still um, resistance. There's this idea of, well, this isn't a valid line of inquiry. Why are you doing this? Nobody has published on this. And so there are two other lines. Um, the Palgrave has a series. Um, Cambridge University Press has a series. And so SUNY Press now has Afro-Latinx Futures series. And so that's, that's what Schomburg has done for me.
And that and that's tremendous. And um, hey, you know, you're you have an open invite as as you always do um, <laughs> to come back uh, and to to speak to uh, either myself or someone else within within the network to be able to uh, get some of your uh, new projects <laughs> uh, onto your uh, <laughs> onto the program. So I see I, I see what you did there, and I appreciate. It. I don't know if you did it on purpose, but I'll take it as if you did. Um, and so um, thank you so much again uh, for, for coming on to the program. It's been exceptional um, to have another uh, experience getting to talk to you for, for over an hour. And, um, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be able to talk to you today. And um, it's, not, uh, it's not goodbye, but it's see you later. <laughs> thank you, Adam, for, for, again, for this conversation. Alrighty, and once again, folks, um, come back to the New Books in African American Studies channel, where we not only talk about scholarship, but we also get to laugh about it as well, <laughs> even within very serious contexts. Because sometimes you just got to live through life and just <laughs> be able to laugh, to be able to stop from crying. <laughs> and so, with that being said, until next time, folks, I am your host, Adam Xavier McNeil, student of history and in the Department of History at the University of hey. Delaware and a new contributor to Black Perspectives. <laughs> a part of, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, within the birthday week, within the birthday week, uh, through the very important and emerging um, group over at the African American Intellectual History Society. And until next time, folks, stay good and stay well. Mm-hmm.